0: Astonishing Legends is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this podcast. In the event of a medical emergency, call a doctor or 911 immediately. Reliance on any information provided by Astonishing Legends is solely at your own risk. Astonishing Legends would like to thank The Great Courses Plus, Quip, Ethos, StoryWorth, and our contributors at Patreon for making tonight's show possible. Tonight, we
1: take a look at one of the biggest questions mankind has had since we popped into existence. Children ask it of their parents as soon as they are old enough to know how, and that question is, what happens when we die? There's no shortage of various beliefs about the answer to that, but one could fairly say that those answers are all rooted in speculation, because the reality is, Even though we've covered near-death experiences in the past, many believe that's not really death because it lacks the finality of it. Death is a one-way ticket, and the only way we'll ever know what's on the other side of it is when we experience it ourselves. And, of course, we all will. As author and dramatist Christopher Bullock penned in 1716, "'Tis impossible to be sure of anything but death and taxes," These questions on death bring us to tonight's guest. Some time ago, we crossed paths with author Brandon Masullo. We'd had the good fortune to take in a presentation of his on a phenomenon known as the spontaneous crisis apparition. It turns out Mr. Masullo is much more than an author. He's also a clinical therapist and a parapsychologist with graduate degrees in clinical counseling from the University of Toledo and psychological research methods from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. The research he did at the University of Edinburgh centered on electromagnetic fields, environmental sensitivity, and ghostly encounters. And tonight, he's here with us for a fascinating take not just on crisis apparitions, but the larger ideas behind whether or not the dead continue to communicate with us.
2: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess.
1: The survival hypothesis is looking at whether your consciousness, soul, spirit, memories, or personality go on after you die. For me, that is the most fascinating part of parapsychology. Paraphrased from our interview with tonight's guest, Brendan Masullo. Join
2: us tonight for our discussion on transcommunication. And we're back. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice. Very, very well done. Yes, we are. We hope everyone enjoyed the Patterson Gimlin series, but now it's time for a cryptid palate cleanser. However, before we get started tonight, we just want to quickly remind everyone that we have all kinds of new glassware and restocked mugs in the store at astonishinglegends.com. So if you're looking for something fun to give dad, head on over there. Oh, and by the way, I want to reiterate, even though it says it in the store, all of our mugs and pint glasses should be washed by hand to preserve the graphics on them. It's just the nature of the beast.
1: Yeah, it's just one more thing to remember. But uh, also remember to download our new favorite podcast playback app, Himalaya. It works on both iOS and Android and is easy to use. And once you get it installed, give us a follow there, and you'll always know when we've got new episodes coming out. I've actually noticed that they're
2: among the fastest to add them when we publish, so it's perfect for the eager beavers out there. Well, tonight it is great to have Brandon on the show, and you're going to hear about how we met him back in Ohio a year or two ago. Brandon's been fascinated by paranormal phenomena for 20 years now and has been a participant and featured speaker in numerous paranormal forums and events, including the Parapsychological Association's 60th Anniversary Celebration. His research has been cited in parapsychological journals, newspaper articles, and mainstream books. You can find his book, The Ghost Studies, on Amazon, and it comes there in uh, Kindle form as well, or anywhere else you get your books. You can also find a link directly to it in our show notes with this episode at AstonishingLegends.com. Yeah, this interview was fascinating and a lot of fun, and
1: it's so great to be able to come at this stuff from an academic angle. All right, let's roll it.
2: So we're here with Brandon Masulo, who is someone that we actually met in Kent, Ohio a little over a year ago or right around a year ago when we were there for the Kent Paranormal Weekend, which, as our listeners know, we've gotten a lot of mileage out of from a story standpoint and people that we've met. And uh, we're just so glad that we went and did that. So, uh, Brandon, thank you so much for making the time to get on the phone with us today.
3: Thanks. Thanks. Uh, Thanks for having me.
2: We're very intrigued with the presentation you gave at the Kent Paranormal Weekend uh, last year about spontaneous crisis apparitions. And then we got copies of your book while we were there, which we have since read. And it goes deeper than that. It's really fascinating. And what I like about it is that it's an academic and deep dive into plausible theories about how ghost encounters might actually work, which is – It's nice to have it attacked from that point of view and not just speculation, which is what we do professionally. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's nice to hear somebody from the scientific community take it
1: seriously, first of all.
3: Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I wrote it is there's a lot of great books out there that give these great ghost stories and tales of haunted locations. And then they kind of just kind of leave you there. And what this book does is it kind of gives you a little bit of hey, this might be going on, this might be the cause of the ghostly encounter. So I just took it a little bit further than a lot of the great books that are already out there.
2: Well, before we get into the book itself, can you maybe talk to our listeners a little bit about your background, both uh, from an academic standpoint and professionally?
3: Sure. I'm a clinical therapist. Uh, I'm also a parapsychologist. I got graduate degrees in clinical counseling from the University of Toledo here in Ohio. And I also have um, an MSc, which is sort of the equivalent of a master's degree in psychological research methods from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. When I was over in Scotland, I uh, did some research on electromagnetic fields, individual differences, and in ghostly encounters. Um, so, so basically, I've been pretty much fascinated by the paranormal phenomenon for about 20 years, and most recently, I've done a, some speaking at the Parapsychological Association's 60th anniversary celebration. If anyone's interested in in, um, my research, you could always uh, look up my name or go to the PA's um, YouTube page to see the lecture. But I'm basically a therapist. Right now, I'm the director of behavioral health for a local hospital. Where I I make my money, I guess, is in the clinical world as far as um, psychology and counseling and those types of things.
2: What exactly is parapsychology?
3: Parapsychology is a a field of study concerned with the investigation of paranormal and psychic phenomenon. Basically, we're looking into telepathy, precognition, clairvoyance, psychokinesis, near-death experiences, reincarnation, apparitional experiences, and sort of all these other paranormal claims that happen. So it's basically the scientific study of, more specifically, interactions between living organisms and their environment that sort of transcend the known physical laws of nature. When it comes to parapsychology, ghosts are kind of one of the things that's probably least studied. There's a lot of more emphasis on consciousness and psi and telepathy and those types of things. But really, there's a lot of parapsychologists who focus on the thing called the survival hypothesis, which is basically what happens after we die. Typical neuropsychology sort of paints us as this picture of more a series of um, electricity and neurocircuits, and that once we die, all that stuff just ceases to exist like a computer. But really, what the survival hypothesis in parapsychology is looking at is, does something go on, whether that's consciousness, soul, spirit, memories, or personality, does that continue to move on? That's the part that, for me, is the most fascinating part of parapsychology. And I will say this, too. you know, Parapsychology sometimes will be, people will say it's a pseudoscience. The University of Edinburgh, where I studied, has a parapsychology department. It's a top 25 school in the world. This is where they cloned the sheep Dolly back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Charles Darwin went to the University of Edinburgh. So this is a pretty prestigious university. And there's other prestigious universities in the United Kingdom that have a parapsychology department. So it's not a like a fringe science or pseudoscience like a lot of people have will say.
1: Well, that leads me to my question here, because you talked about this at the Kent Paranormal Weekend. There aren't many places to study the field of parapsychology, and this is one of your better school options in uh, Edinburgh, and you, you, you said, like, well, there's just not many places in the U.S. to study that. Why do you think that is?
3: You know, I don't know the answer to that. I think that they're a little bit more open in the United Kingdom as far as studying this type of phenomenon. It's always follow the money, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's really what it comes down to. There's not a lot of research grants and funding for parapsychology here in the States. So maybe that's not why they include it in a lot of the, um, the colleges. But I always say, you know, if a local college put up a course on parapsychology, I think they would really pack it. I think a lot of young kids nowadays are really interested in some of these answers about consciousness right. and telepathy and those types of things. So the short answer is they're more open over there. I hope that that translates here. We do have some universities that do things, like the University of Virginia has um, a department. I think the University of Arizona has a department as well. They don't call it parapsychology. They call it other things like transcendental psychology and other names, but it's sort of parapsychology in a way. So it's kind of here. It's just not formalized calling it parapsychology.
1: Well, do you think there's a cultural difference between our attitudes here in the States and overseas in Europe and and Asia? And Maybe we're just maybe a little more skeptical or we're just more hesitant about how it appears.
3: Yeah, I would probably say we're a little bit more skeptical. Anyone who's ever been to Scotland, if you just walk down the street, you can go in any shop or any pub someone will tell you a ghost story. They'll tell you how the pub is haunted. They'll tell you how their shop is haunted. They got a cousin or an aunt who's seen a ghost at this table, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's a lot more open. Here in the States, it's not as if it's that common place to walk into a shop and people tell you it's haunted. So the conversations not aren't always there. And when you hit academia, If you start saying that you've seen a ghost, then, you know, sometimes people think, well, that person's not stable or whatnot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've run into that ourselves.
3: There's millions of people who have paranormal experiences every day, so that's not really true.
1: Right. We might be a little more conscious about, uh, you know, our public appearance about that and not wanting to share that. But once you get to know people we found, they'll usually open up
2: and it's not like there's any shortage of ghost stories anywhere in the world. Yeah, lots of people have stories here in the states as well, but to your point, and I think that's part of the reason that our show has found the audience that it has, it's that we're saying, "Hey, it's okay to talk about this. We don't think you're weird, and it's okay to laugh about it and be scared about it and ask questions about it and it can just be part of your life if you want it to be. It doesn't mean that you need necessarily need some kind of treatment for like you said, you know, yeah. being off-kilter or something."
3: I didn't really talk about ghosts or parapsychology too much, but when the book came out, I didn't have a choice, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. At that point, everyone knows I'm in the ghosts and parapsychology. So (laughs) since that's happened, I've actually had some people that I would never have guessed have had paranormal experiences come and talk to me. My 95-year-old grandma, we were sitting in her living room, and she goes, you know, I had one of those um, telepathy moments. I was just sitting here, and I saw your mom standing in the kitchen, and she wasn't there and then I found out later that your mom got into a, an accident or something. So she had this hmm. fascinating paranormal experience that she just never shared with anybody. Wow! But when she knew, I was studying it and I wouldn't judge or call anyone names or then they're more open to talk about it.
1: Well, was there any event that got you interested in this field or how did you get interested in this field and want to study it further?
3: You know, I'm one of the rarities, and I've never really had a what I would call full-blown paranormal or ghostly encounter. When I was younger, probably I think 14, 15 years old, I was over a friend's at a sleepover party. Oh, this is the story in your book. Yeah. He lived next door to a a cemetery. Uh You know, one morning, my friend just woke up in a tizzy saying he saw a ghost. And then he was kind of like, as he was coming down, he was like, what is a ghost? And all these other questions. And I was just like, I don't know. Back then, the internet was kind of there, but it wasn't something that you can get a lot of information from. Right. So I went to the library, picked up a book on parapsychology, read every book in parapsychology in the library, uh, every one I can get my hands on. And then that's really the beginning of it. And then I ended up going to school for psychology. I got my clinical degree in counseling, did that. And then I was on a plane to Scotland studying parapsychology. So I didn't have an experience. I was just really fascinated with it. And I know back then it's kind of you know, I would hide the parapsychology books because I didn't want anyone to know when I was reading it, you know. (laughs) Now but um
2: Then you you decided the best thing to do was to write one called The Ghost Studies and publish (laughs) it. (laughs) You went you came full circle.
3: I still remember when my girlfriend found the, my book on parapsychology, she's like, "What is this?" I go, "I'm just holding that for a friend." Yeah.
2: You know, it's so the, what is so funny? This is kind of meta because I, I took my son to his karate lesson yesterday, and I'm like reading your book, trying to finish it before the interview, and I'm in the dojo reading it, and these I'm starting to get strange looks from these parents that have known me for like they have yeah. no idea about the podcast or anything. And at the end of it, one of them was like, "What are you reading?" And I was, yeah, should we keep our children away from your child? She, she was yeah. like, "Why are you highlighting that?" And I was like, "Well." I'm You know,
3: (laughs) (laughs) the person probably approached you because they're interested.
0: Yeah, exactly.
4: I'm Brittany Williams, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show.
2: All right. Well, so since you brought us into your book, I did want to ask you some questions about it. It's truly a fascinating read. I love how deep it goes and it has so much good sourcing because I have a feeling it's going to lead me and Forrest both to like 10 other books we need to read. It's just amazing the amount of research that you've done going into all this to formulate your point of view on it. And it reads like you were developing research, almost like a dissertation or something to try to put an idea together of based on all the background you have, Trying to figure out how all these things might work, did you write this after were you have you been working on it through your academic career or after it was done, or how how did that work?
3: After I left Scotland and came back here to the states and I was doing more more clinical than research work as when I sat down and actually started writing it, it took me about five to six years to write the whole book. Uh-huh. you know, I was working full time, so I had the weekends and some time to do that. It really started. When I was in Scotland, my dissertation was on environmental sensitivity or why certain people are more prone to paranormal experiences. Right. And then I did some research in a haunted location. And then I really it, – it, it got inside my head and I kept asking myself, why are some people having more experiences? And then it kind of got to why are certain locations haunted? Why are certain other ones not Haunted, what makes this person more prone? What makes this location have paranormal experiences, whereas this one doesn't? And then my brain just started going and going and going. And then usually when that happens, I have to pick up a book and start going and learning. And then that really opened my eyes to all these new alternative views on consciousness and the collective consciousness, and Carl Jung and Rupert Sheldrake. And all this stuff was really just beaming. And then as I was doing my clinical work, I worked in the emergency room setting for a while, and I talked to, oh gosh, over the seven years I did it, I probably did about 5,000 evaluations or something like that. Wow. Not to say that everyone doing a psychiatric evaluation is crazy. Some people come in in the ER with just a panic attack. So I started noticing when, whether as kids or adults were telling me some paranormal experiences, that there were some similarities that I was noticing. And then I started reading some books with case examples, and I started noticing the same similarities. And then I started sitting down and writing these things down. And then out came this book. So it wasn't like I was just sitting there with one epiphany moment. I was like, that's it. It took six years of research and writing and research. And like you said, there's a lot of references in the book. So a lot of that's combing through the literature, as they like to say. And then out came the book.
2: One of the things that you mentioned uh, near the top of the book, is you're talking about the different points of view about parapsychology and ghostly encounters. And you mentioned specifically that people who believe that ghosts are simply the spirits of souls that have died, that's what a lot of people seem to think, how that conflicted or was in direct conflict with neuropsychology. Can you explain a little bit what neuropsychology's point of view is on death?
3: Basically, it's really sad. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> they basically think that humans are computers and that once the computer stops running, whether it's a malfunction with whatever, that they cease to exist. So as humans, you know, we're all unique, we're all individual, we have our personality, we have our memories, we have all these wonderful things that makes us conscious and enjoy life. And Neuropsychology is basically saying, well, that's not really there. That's just a mixture of electrical impulses and brain stuff and all this other stuff that goes into it. And then basically when that stops, it ceases to exist. I don't know what's right or wrong. There's a huge battle over what consciousness is and where it's located. Is it located in the brain? Is it external? I don't know. But neuropsychology kind of paints us as these machines with all these paranormal experiences that are out there and the phenomenon that people are reporting, I just never bought into the fact that we just shut it down. I always felt like with the survival hypothesis, something was happening. Some part of our memory, our consciousness, our personality continues to move on. And in my view, the more I read recently, there's a lot more research, which is pointing to this idea that part of us does kind of continue to move on. And a lot of the prominent scientists out there are kind of more adapting to that view than this idea that we just cease to exist in, in any plane or any dimension and all of our memories and thoughts are just gone.
2: Would you say the neuropsychological point of view is a result of something that there's hard evidence for, or would you say it's just as speculative as any other theory?
3: I would say it's just as um, speculative as every, every other theory. Okay. Because literally, no one has any answers to what is consciousness. And consciousness is sort of our self awareness, who we are how we go about the world, what makes me know what's happening to me right now, that consciousness idea. Uh, and No one's figured out exactly where that is. It's not located in a part of the brain. It's not really something that you can see on a test. No one's really solved that problem. And if consciousness, some part of us, moves on after we die or continues to go on, then that opens the door to all kinds of paranormal phenomenon, from near-death experiences to ghostly encounters to telepathy, to sigh, to whatever. It opens the door to that. A lot of people have tried (laughs) to kind of come up with this idea, but no one's really found the answer to it.
2: In the book, you also talk about, I mean, you talk about the the, a lot of the bigger different theories, which are some that we have mentioned frequently on the show, so our listeners will have heard us, I don't know, the word would probably be harping on them. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, you know, we talk about the different types of hauntings, which you mentioned, and the idea of spiritualism being associated with it, the stone tape theory, that's something that Forrest tries to say in every episode, or the, <laughs> the imprint <laughs> theory. I mean, we've talked about all that, but you did touch on just the idea of something being burnt into the environment, and then that comes back up, obviously, as your book progresses. Uh-huh. But you also talked about something that – and it's my – the thing I try to work into every episode and I'm making fun of myself here because I'm not trying to just make fun of Forrest. No, and you were the last thing. one to
1: bring up the stone
2: tape I probably theory. was the last one. Yeah, yes, yes. I left Touché. it alone. Touche. Okay. So <laughs> – but um, the idea of the quantum connection and the idea of entanglement, which is something you go into uh, great depth in your book on and sort of this idea of entanglement between living folks and how that might – equate to the higher likelihood of some kind of apparition appearing between one of those two parties. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you've got a whole book on it, so that's maybe a hard thing to sum up? (laughs) Uh, I'm not trying to put you on the spot about it, and everyone needs to just read your book. But the idea of it and how you came to uh, sort of evolve that idea.
3: Yeah, entanglement is probably... I would probably say it's probably one of the most fascinating things that I've read in the recent years. And when we talk about entanglement, what we're really talking about is, and it's hard to really explain, like you said, but basically entanglement is non-locality, which is the ability of objects to sort of instantaneously know about each other's state, even when they're separated by extreme distances. And when objects become synchronized, then information is sort of transported and shared and communicated. Now, the type of information that's usually passed can come in the form of visual feelings, hunches, those types of things as well. But entanglement in the book, like you said, I go over it quite a bit. Michael Persinger did the most research in this recently. And what the research suggests is our minds are entangled or connected with the minds of others. This is both alive and deceased, according to some of his research. And that more or less they can synchronize at great distances. Now, what that means is somehow the environment that surrounds us is able to sort of transport more information than we're aware of. And our surrounding atmosphere may provide sort of this reliable way to access and exchange information among humans. And the ability to tap into this is actually what's the basis for a lot of the psi communication, communication at distances, this part. And what the research really says is they've done studies where they've actually shown that brains can synchronize or link up with participants who were separated by over like 3,000 miles. Persinger did a lot of research that they had this rough idea of a magnetic field pattern that could increase the likelihood of entanglement uh, or communication at a distance. So what he would do is he would put what we normal experiment or normal participants, so no psychic abilities or anything like that, and he would separate them, put them in different rooms, and then expose them to this sort of specific magnetic field uh, around their brains and they synchronized and information was passed. So they put a pair of siblings, they put one in one room and another in another room. And what they did was they stimulated one with light flashes in a room and then the other one who was located in a room that was pitch black, they tested and they found out that he was having an eye response similar to seeing light flashes. So how is that possible if he's in a pitch black room? Well, they had these similar rotating magnetic fields around their heads and they actually synchronized. They took someone with psychic abilities and Both the psychics and the subjects' EEGs resonated, so they became synchronized. And then information passed, and then the psychic was able to get accurate readings. So there's a lot of actually scientific research out there that says people are actually synchronizing and tangling, and communication is passed. It's kind of crude what the communication is passed, but if we think about how the phone was in the 1800s, It was probably a lot of static and then eventually a word. So right now, they kind of have this idea, if we mess with these magnetic fields around two people's brains, we can sort of manipulate the environment and information could be passed, which is fascinating if you think about it.
2: Yeah, because, I mean, when can we get a helmet that just makes it work? (laughs) That's really interesting. Well, we made friends with, over the course of our show, some uh, remote viewing expert, and Forrest actually took a class with them. It seems like there's a lot of common ground there. I guess I wonder how the synchronization, is that a complex thing to to arrange, or is it a very simple, technically, to create these magnetic fields that are identical?
3: I don't know specifically how complicated it is. I imagine it's complicated. For them, they had to do a series of studies to find out kind of what was the specific pattern or field that worked. Right, Once right. they did that, then they you know separated people and put that field around their head. It doesn't really go into if there was a lot of trial and error around it. Uh But it's as simple as kind of what you say is there's two people have helmets on their heads and the helmets supply these fluctuating magnetic fields and people get linked up if they're on the same sort of rotating fields. I don't know how expensive it is to do, but I can't imagine it's too expensive. But in the long run, if we have this idea and we can do it on a consistent basis, then that opens the idea to that it can be done. Now, obviously, we're manipulating the environment, right? When you talk about remote viewers, they're doing this without any equipment on their heads or anything like that. So they're able to sort of sink into the Earth's resonant frequency or whatever they sink into and do this without equipment. But it seems like magnetic fields are somewhat involved in a lot of the processes that are happening.
1: To extend that to people who can seem to, to do that naturally, they're somehow able to control their own natural magnetic field. Would that be correct?
3: From the research that's out there, there's a guy named Sean Harebantz.
2: Oh, I was going to ask you about him. I had
1: not heard
3: of this
2: guy, but in your book, he sounds amazing.
3: He's one of the ones that they did a lot of the research on. Uh And like I said before, when he was able to get accurate psychic readings, they found that things were happening around his brain. He was manipulating sort of the magnetic fields around his brain. One of the things they talked about was sort of this ability to resonate with Earth's Schumann resonance. And once he was able to do that, the frequencies matched, and he was able to gather information from the environment. So let's say all the information about me is sort of in the environment. All the information about everyone who's ever lived is floating around in the environment. Some people, under certain circumstances, connect with this. It's through manipulating the magnetic fields around their heads, synchronizing with the Earth's resonance frequency or Schumann resonance, and then getting that information. And it was through research with him that they figured out what that complex, fluctuating magnetic field is that they put around people's heads to synchronize. So a lot of the research on that is out there. It's sometimes, in the journal articles, it's complicated to read, but nonetheless, you can sort of get an idea of what their thinking is and and what's involved in a process like this.
2: You talked about the, the Schumann resonance in your book. Can you explain that to our listeners? In terms of that resonance, is that a a frequency that is generated, theoretically, by the core, the iron core of the Earth?
3: The Schumann resonances are generated by um, sort of worldwide lightning discharges, actually. Oh, okay. And they're they're sort of constant electromagnetic waves that exist in the atmosphere and are the Earth's background or resonant frequency. And this influences humans, in a way, as well as animals. So everything out there has a resonant frequency from if you drop a Coke bottle, if you drop a pencil, there's a resonant frequency or a natural frequency that everything gives out. And the Earth is the same. These Schumann resonances are always around us, and the frequencies kind of vary with solar cycles and radiation from the sun. But for the most part, there's a baseline or fundamental resonant frequency, and Interestingly enough, the Schumann resonance is actually the same resonant frequency as the human brain, which is 7.83 Hertz. We need this residency to some degree to survive. It helps us with sleep. It helps us with all kinds of, it's important for our survival. But what they found was that this is somewhat connected to paranormal occurrences as well. So humans, if we think about how long humans have been around, in order to communicate distress, Before we had cell phones and radio waves and all that, we sort of had to rely on the environment. So maybe there's this past part of us that was pretty good at communicating distress at great distances through the atmosphere when we were cavemen or something like that. But as we've gotten more technology advanced, we don't use that anymore, so it's pushed down deeper and deeper. But some people still have this sort of sense.
2: Oh, that's interesting.
3: You know, or ability to do that, that there's sort of vestiges of it in some people, whereas other people, it's just gone away entirely.
2: And you mentioned also in your book, there was an experiment where some folks were like put in a deprivation room and deprived of the Schumann resonance and kind of lost their minds a little bit as a result of that. (laughs)
3: Yeah, somehow they had volunteers that went into a bunker. They blocked out all those resonances and their circadian rhythms kind of went bananas. They got really emotionally distressed, a lot of migraine, headaches. uh, So they weren't doing really well. So they ended up introducing the frequency back into the bunker and then they kind of went back to baseline.
2: Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. This goes to the, the whole idea or one of the bigger ideas of your book is that there's this concept of tapping into information. That's available, and you can tap into this information between you and another party, like you said, living or deceased, or in the kind of the grand pie is tapping into the one that is emanates from the whole planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which to me, what it seemed like was in terms of you know apparitional or paranormal experience that's interpersonal that's connecting if someone's living that's connecting with the living person and that's about synchronizing with them whereas if it's someone is deceased or it's a remote viewing experience that's more of an idea of connecting to this resonant frequency in the earth
3: yes i exactly. mean
2: I'm, I'm making leaps here but am i did i no, do did i do no. good okay no <laughs> no, right. no. Okay. michael
3: persinger he's recently passed away but he's he's a neuropsychologist from canada And there's a great YouTube clip out there called No More Secrets with him where it's a presentation where he kind of goes over this idea that, in theory, we have access to information from every brain that's present and past, that the environment has enough energy to hold all this information. And to some degree, he basically states, and it does. Now, this goes against everything that we've been taught from children on, right? The idea that we have access to memories, thoughts, or whatever from Abraham Lincoln and Albert Einstein just floating out there, it just blows your mind when you think about it. But the way he presents it is our atmosphere, it has enough energy to hold that. And there's examples of with remote viewing and things like that where people tap into that to some degree. So it's far-fetched. I know when I first got into parapsychology, I was an adamant skeptic and I would just be like, no, that doesn't happen, that doesn't happen. But when you actually sit down and listen to like whether it's his YouTube presentation, No More Secrets, or you start reading research or reading books that are just a little outside the norm, you start making a little bit more connections and you start thinking, well, maybe it is possible. I mean, I'm communicating on my cell phone to somebody in Japan. In the environment, it's happening. (laughs) Right. I'm sending text messages that are leaving one electronic device and bouncing around the world and then entering another one. It's out there. It's possible. The idea that humans can't do it, before I would say, no, they can't do it. But now it's kind of along the lines of maybe we can do it. Maybe it is possible. And I think that this research that I talked about, entanglement, like you said, the synchronization, all this stuff kind of points us in the direction of maybe it is possible.
1: Well, are there any hypotheses? about how people are able to do this. How are they able to manipulate their own magnetic resonance and and frequency to do this willfully? Because I imagine some people, you know, just happens by accident. Some people Mm. are able to initiate it. I know with remote viewing practices, at least with controlled remote viewing, and that is a specific type of remote viewing methodology The practice and the methodology is meant to be very standardized. So there's no variables. You try to eliminate as many variables as you possibly can so that your results are much more standardized. There's nothing psychic. You don't, you know, you're not looking into a crystal ball. You know, I mean, that's scrying. That's another maybe form of that. Mm -hmm. of trying to tap into that. But really, it's just you sit down with a piece of paper and you go through steps, which are the same every time. And that has been developed over the years into a practice that is, on the outside, you look at it, it's like, well, there's no, yeah, where is the crystal ball? There's nothing
2: going on there. And our friend Lori Williams, who Forrest took the class from and who we had as a guest on our show a while back, one of the first things she tells you is, there's nothing special about this. This is not about being, anyone can learn this. It's about learning how to tap into it. Right. So that's a
1: methodology to tapping into it, which provides some very interesting results. But are there any... I guess in your field, any kind of hypotheses about how people are without this methodology able to do this?
3: It's going to seem like a very simple answer. But what a lot of the research says is that usually people, when they get into their meditative states, everyone usually has a process to do this. Mm -hmm. And it usually involves being in a quiet atmosphere, decreasing stimuli, meditating, sort of that connecting with the outside or the things around them. That seems to be what a lot of the research says increases the likelihood of something like this happening. And when you think about it, it's the same as with, with ghosts or ghostly encounters. If I'm in a room that's quiet and I'm sort of just focused or zoning out, I would probably more likely to have a ghostly encounter or apparitional encounter as opposed to being in a nightclub and dancing to techno music. My chances are probably better if I'm in a quiet room as opposed to dancing around. And I think that that really is the basis or the starting point of, like you talked about, the procedures or connecting with whatever's out there.
4: linkedin jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience in fact 86 percent of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com spoken that's linkedin.com spoken terms and conditions apply
3: forrest and scott thank you for supporting their sponsors
2: i'm Corey walsh now back to the show Can we talk a little bit about one of the points that you come around to in the book, and again, the presentation you were that we saw you give in Kent. Let's talk a little bit about spontaneous crisis apparitions, and how, how did you come to get involved with the study of those, and how exactly does that work and relate to everything that we've already discussed?
3: Well, crisis apparitions, when we look at the literature for parapsychology, actually there's an abundance of research in the crisis apparitions pretty much since the 1800s it far exceeds anything when it comes to hauntings or anything like that and i'll just kind of review but crisis apparitions are basically experiences which are occurring at or near the time of um, someone we're sort of connected with, a loved one or a friend, at the time that they're dying or involved in an accident or experiencing some other unexpected event. So this is when you have people who reported seeing like an apparition of their aunt or relative or their aunt about the time that their aunt was dying. So I wake up on a Wednesday night, and my aunt's floating in front of me saying goodbye, and then I find out the next day that she actually died at that same time. That's the genesis of the crisis apparition. So for me, I love these crisis apparitions because there's there's so many great things that you can pull out of them. They're spontaneous. The experiences usually only occur once without expectation. So the individual's don't know they're gonna have a ghostly experience. They're not seeking a ghostly experiences.
0: Yeah, Most they're not of them,
2: preconditioned. They haven't been led yep. into a basement on a on a ghost yep. tour or something. I, I thought that exact, was interesting you pointed that out in the book, yeah.
3: That's the best situation. A lot of them don't even have a history of paranormal experiences. They don't claim psychic abilities and some of them weren't even interested in paranormal experiences. So this decreases that possibility of suggestibility that you talked about. Uh huh. If I'm in a hotel room in a haunted location where someone was murdered and I'm just hypervigilant, the smallest noise, could I could think, well, that's a ghost or whatever. But crisis apparitions, none of that's really there. And what's also great about them is you can sort of, in a way, check the validity of a person's experience through, too, with death records or secondary sources or whatever. And then it's hard to say, ah, it was just a coincidence that I woke up and saw a ghost of my aunt right as she passed away. I don't think right as you passed away that exact moment, it's tough to say that's a coincidence. <laughs> so yeah. to me, there's a lot of things that you get away a lot of the variables that skeptics or disbelievers will say could have caused the crisis apparition.
2: It's not always in the case of a death. I mean, you, you have some stories even in your book where uh, there's one of them, and I, I can't remember which page it's on, where it's the woman was in a car accident and her husband saw her. And oh yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. This isn't always necessarily have to do with the death of someone.
3: Yeah, in crisis apparitions it could be like a car accident or someone falling and getting hurt, something something as simple as someone getting burned or something. Usually there's some sort of communication that's happening uh, whether it's an emotion, a feeling, a hunch, a smell or an apparition. These crisis apparitions are great for a lot of reasons and I think that that's what really got me towards them. And uh, that's what really started to, to make me ask why are some people having these and some people not? And then that's what led to more fascination as far as getting into the history of them. If anyone ever wants to read up on Crisis Apparitions, Phantasms of the Living is a book that was published in 1882. And it's got like 600 spontaneous cases.
2: <laughs> you know, it's funny. I love the rare books that we come across on the show. And I've, I've started collecting them. But I always start at Amazon. And then I go to A Books for collector books. But that one was right on Amazon. Oh, no. it said oh It said not currently available. But it was there. I haven't got. I was like, "Oh, I want this! I want this!" You got where it's eighteen hundreds, it's a thousand pages. Bring it! <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: What's best about those books too is you can get them for free too if you don't mind reading them on the internet. Yeah, yeah. That one is was
2: digitized. I think they said. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. pretty awesome. Is it thought that the
1: spike in emotional energy at these times of crises? is what generates this, because I've heard personal stories from friends where, yeah, it was a a loved one, and it's not just a ghost because they hadn't passed away yet. They were just in some kind of personal crisis at the moment, which caused them to appear or get a feeling.
3: Yeah. In the book, I, I think emotions, emotional distress, trauma, the way we feel after an event like that is the catalyst or starting point to these crisis apparitions. So if if we look at crisis apparitions, it's a series of complex processes, and it's not as simple as, waking up and witnessing a crisis apparition of your aunt. There's a series of complex processes which occur both consciously as well as unconsciously, which sort of set the stage for this apparition to occur. And emotions or psychological aspects is the catalyst to that. And if we look through the research in parapsychology or in ghostly encounters all the way back to the 1800s, we find that heightened emotions are, in a way, necessary for paranormal phenomenon to occur crisis, trauma, acute stress, life-threatening events, they cause an explosion of emotional distress and turmoil that sort of reverberate through the body. Uh, A lot of research in the past has shown that there's a correlation between that. And when this turmoil reverberates throughout the entire body, it affects one mentally and physically. And so intense, acute emotional shifts are the the starting points. This is where it all begins. And then it kind of moves on to when these emotions happen to us, it actually changes our internal makeup as well our bioenergy or cuz we're all electrical beings and then that causes changes and then when those internal changes happen that emanates out into the environment and then when it emanates out into the environment it sort of bounces around and links up to somebody across the way so my aunt as she's dying, she's probably, let's say she's having a heart attack or something. She's probably going to be like, oh my God, I'm dying. I don't, I, there's so much I want to do. I still feel so guilty. So many emotions are going through her body that at some point it causes all this internal changing, our, our bioenergy changes. And somehow it um, that goes out into the environment and resonates with me who I'm four or five states away. And then I have this apparitional experience.
1: Well, that hits on a really interesting anecdote. I guess it's a famous case that you presented in your stage presentation at the Kent Paranormal Weekend, where an event like that, a crisis event, went out kind of into the airwaves, you could say, and was kind of a repeating echo. And it was the case where this family had moved into this house and heard this loud crash and then thundering down the stairs and running out the front door. Of course, nothing was there, but it kept repeating itself. Could you talk a little bit about that?
3: The case you're talking about actually comes from Fate Magazine, and and it happened in the 40s here in Ohio, actually. And what happened was, on a specific date, which was May 24th, I believe, Ann and Jack were kind of sitting around at dinner, and they just rented this house that was built in the 1860s. And, you know, they were drinking their tea, and then all of a sudden they heard the sound of feet pounding across the upper floor, and then it came the feet came down the steps. They heard a, a boy's voice screaming, Ma, Ma, oh, Ma! And then they, they raced to the, river, the living room to find out what the voice was about. But the voice actually went outside the front door. As they opened the door, they heard a horrific crash and this blood-chilling screams. And then it sort of ended in this gurgling choke. And as they looked out sort of into the night, they were like, what was that? But what happened was this phenomenon occurred pretty much on a daily basis for, I don't know if it was weeks or months. So you have this recurrent residual paranormal or ghostly encounter that's happening to them. And they asked themselves, what is happening? So they actually went down to the local... I think he was the grocer or something like that. And they were asking him some questions like, Do you know anything about this house? You know, like trying to figure out what was going on. They found out that basically this has happened to other people, but the grocer said that uh, in 1871, the youngest son who was at that time living at the house moved to Chicago to be a bricklayer. As he was in Chicago being a bricklayer, he actually fell from the scaffolding crashed to the ground and broke his neck and it was reported that at the same time that this son in chicago in 1871 fell off the scaffolding his mom in akron who was in a chair heard feet rushing across the upstairs down the steps and out the door and heard her son scream ma oh ma and then she heard a body falling and reported the gurgling or cracking obviously If somebody falls from a scaffolding as a bricklayer and they break their neck, which he did and died in Chicago, then she was having these experiences here. So this is an example of a crisis apparition that happened in 1871. The weird part of this is it's now the 1940s and people who are renting the house are having the same exact paranormal phenomenon that the mom had in 1871. All right. Right. So. They're having unexplained footsteps. They're hearing a male's voice say ma oh ma. They're having blood chilling screams, crashes, gurgling chokes happening on a daily basis. So the idea is that's kind of bizarre. But what we find is that this telepathic message that was sent between son and mom in 1871, this telepathic distress call was somehow just stayed in the environment in Akron, Ohio. And these people are sort of experiencing the same thing over and over again. So that kind of explains maybe what a haunting could be. You mentioned imprint theory before, which you guys, or stone tape theory or whatever, Mm. um, different names, I suppose. Yes. With the stone tape theory, there has to be a tragedy that happens in the house. Someone has to die a horrific death, and the energy is burned into the environment. That limits the haunting to one place. With the theory that I'm talking about, The haunting could be at the starting point or the end point of this telepathic distress signal. In this case, the guy died in Chicago of the horrific death, but the actual phenomenon is happening in Akron, Ohio.
1: So it's, it's kind of like the line, the telephone line, if you will, is open. And that message, that event keeps bouncing back and forth. And for whatever reason, it just ends up repeating itself at the other end, almost Mm -hmm. kind of like if it's trapped in that space in the house.
2: Yeah. What was interesting to me about how you presented the idea of these apparitions happening was that you've got, you know, not only the sender, but you've got the receiver, and that there needs to be an alignment of factors to allow the message to be received, which, yep. you know, reminded me of sort of the Swiss cheese theory where the slices, they every now and then they line up mm-hmm. right so that something can pass through. Because you talk about how everyone has to be in a certain emotional state. They're connected, Uh, obviously, love, or in addition to love biologically, whether it's uh, mother and son or, or siblings or what have you, all of those things are lining up, and those circumstances are allowing this message to go from one place to the other. But in this particular case, unintended recipients are continuing to receive the message. So not only do we have a bit of a misfire because just these renters are seeing it, it's also a misfire in terms of time which obviously we I don't think we as humans understand very well anyway but mm-hmm. because it's still happening as you said all these decades later how does that play into sort of your overall theory about how these messages work
3: you have the the son who's in Chicago emotional distress falling dying sending this message the telepathic message to the mother in Akron now this telepathic message that's sent is in a way burned into the environment in Akron, in, in my view, and it sort of just resides there, right? Okay. Now the environment has sort of caught this there. It's going to remain there. So it's almost so, like a
2: cobweb of or some kind of spiderweb has collected this this message and is holding on to it.
3: Yeah, something like that. The endpoint of the telepathic distress message that was sent is just burned in there somehow. Okay. I think that it kind of. Like We talked about the environment and previously being able to hold on to this type of information. I think that in certain situations where there's a lot of emotion a lot of trauma, that this type of stuff can be burned in there. Now, it doesn't have to be the starting point or where the tragedy happens, but it could be the end point of that, and that certain people walk through there and are able to tap into that. Do I have the answer to all the, this is what's happening? No, I don't. And I think anyone who comes on and says they have answers to everything uh, may not know that, that they don't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But in my eyes, I think this is a plausible way to look at this. This isn't the ghost of this Chicago son coming back to his home to haunt people. This is just a replaying of that telepathic distress signal over and over and over again to people who are sort of can tap into that. Now, I don't know if everyone who goes into that house has those experiences, jack and Anne, maybe they're a little bit more prone to them than everyone else they can just sort of tap into this environment that's around them
2: what's the difference between that kind of you know this a crisis apparition experience like that and something that's more of a residual non-interactive experience where you're seeing someone doing the same thing every day or lots of people see the same thing like we had a friend that stayed on the queen mary and was uh getting dressed. And in the mirror behind him, he saw a gentleman from another time period putting on a a top hat and tails in the mirror. It's a different kind of thing, obviously not a crisis, but this sort of residual thing. How does that connect to uh, the theory of imprints, the difference between that specific message that's being transmitted and the other one that's more just like a glimpse of a, a, a normal everyday activity?
3: For the example you gave with your friend with a man appearing in a top hat, there could have been a telepathic distress signal that was sent years ago. We'll say the guy's dress was from the 1920s. Perhaps this guy in the tuxedo fell, hit his head, and died as he was going to the opera. Uh And the wife was on the Queen Mary or something. And as she was getting ready one night, she saw an apparition of her husband in his tuxedo and hat. And she said, oh, yeah oh my gosh, what's this about? And then she finds out the next day that he died falling into a river as he was going to the opera in his tuxedo. So you have this telepathic message that was sent, let's say, in the 1920s where the recipient was on the Queen Mary, the wife, and now your friend who comes into this cabin or whatever the situation is, is somehow tapping into that past telepathic message. So it's residual, it's replaying, But it's not necessarily the ghost of this guy who died in the 1920s or a a time warp or dimensional thing. It's more like he's tapping into this past telepathic distress signal that was sent years and years ago.
2: I can't remember how old you are, Brandon, but do you remember answering machines? Oh,
3: yeah. Okay, so
2: (laughs) (laughs) I was always thinking my mom had a phone mate. Mm-hmm. I loved to play with it when I was a kid. So, and And it would have the two tapes in it. And the one tape was the outgoing message and the other tape... It was actually pretty cool mechanically how it worked and everything. The other tape had, you know, all the messages that had come in. And in a way... It's kind of like an an old answer machine left behind that has the incoming message on it. And if, yeah. you, if you come into the room and you can find the play button, you hit play yep. and you get to hear it again.
3: Exactly. This guy in the tuxedo wasn't tragically murdered in that Queen Mary. She's not looking into the past or some dimensional thing. Yeah. She's just hitting a play button on a past crisis apparition or telepathic distress message that was sent in 1920 when this guy died. falling. I'm making all this up, obviously, falling in a mm. river or something. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm you look at all these haunting experiences and there's like we talked about with the Jack and Ann story. Had you just looked at that experience, like they're having footsteps, they're screaming, there's blood curdling noises uh, or there's cracking necks and all that. You would think, Oh, that's just a regular haunt type experience. Somebody must've died in that house. Right. But when you find the actual, the origin story of that, Then you can sort of piece together where it came from, which is actually a telepathic distress signal sent from the son in Chicago to the mom in Akron in 1871. This is just replaying.
1: Well, what about supposed other more interactive ghost encounters from people? What do you believe is going on there when the stories that we've heard? they do seem to a little bit fall into various categories. Like what you're describing maybe is a visual echo. Uh, Uh You're you're seeing something repeat. It's the same image. It's the same person. They don't interact with the experiencer, but we've certainly heard a ton of stories where people seem to be interacting with some kind of apparition. Uh And it's a call and response thing where it's not just somebody or something repeating words or a a phrase, they seem to be communicating with this person. What do you think is going on there?
3: That's a completely legitimate question. And the short answer to that is, I don't know.
1: (laughs) That's perfectly acceptable. Yeah. (laughs) Neither do we.
2: Yeah. Why do you think we asked?
3: (laughs) When it comes to paranormal experiences, specifically ghosts, and I don't know why this is, people want to find one explanation that explains everything out there, Right. I don't think that's necessarily helpful because if you see an apparition, there could be numerous explanations to what that is. It could be something natural, you know, EMF meters or mold or Mm -hmm. carbon monoxide or something like that. It could be something like I'm talking about, which is a psi hypothesis and thought transference and those types of things. It could be an earthbound spirit. It could be you're talking about intelligent apparitions which are communicating and giving information to somebody so if someone gets information like hey check behind the the stove there's a hundred dollars that i left before i died and the person does that that's actually intelligent conscious information passing between mm-hmm. someone who sees which my theory doesn't explain mm-hmm. so if we look at all the paranormal experiences out there ghostly encounters you know you could write off maybe 15 percent to fraud whatever mm-hmm. um then there's that 70 or i'm sorry um 85 well wait a minute we can write off 25% <laughs> fraud, and then you have 75% that could be explained in other ways. Sometimes earthbound, sometimes poltergeist, or recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, psi theory, intelligence, residual, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I, I, yeah. it's such a complex process that there's not one explanation for everything. I think this idea of earthbound spirits is easy to say because you can't explain everything through that but I don't necessarily think that that's always happening. So if it is an Earthbound spirit, why would they do the same thing every night at Jack and Ann's house, which is run down the steps, run outside, and do whatever right that seems to be more plausible as a residual other ones like poltergeist activity obviously that's not residual there's plates flying all over the place Mm -hmm. and then the one you talked about that's not residual that's intelligent so there's different explanations for each one every case needs to be looked at differently
1: well what do you think is going on or is the scientific mechanism because i've always wondered this it's like yeah you can have something kind of appear in your head you know as an image or a sound And that's maybe one thing, that's maybe biochemical that's happening or neurological, neurochemical that's happening in your head. But how are these things able to actually, if it is the case, produce sound or in the case of telepathic or psychokinesis or poltergeist activity, What are your thoughts on how are these things able to move physical objects or make actual sounds?
3: Yeah, and and that's the, the main question. And it's been going through parapsychology for a long period of time. Are apparitions objective, which means they're in the environment interacting with things, or are they subjective, which is the result of our internal makeup projecting outward, which is hallucinations, things like that. And that's really the battle that's been going on for so long. There's so many cases where you can say that The phenomenon is objective. I mean, it moves in front of, let's say, there's a clock on the wall. The apparition moves in front of it, and it blocks the clock. That means it would be objective. If it casts a shadow, it's objective. Subjective, it might not do that, or as a result of hallucinations. So, again, I usually say this with pretty much vigor. I don't know. I think the jury's still out on a lot of this this information, and we all can throw out the speculation and hypothesis. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just think that it's something that I really haven't figured out the exact answer to.
2: Okay, so I, I wanted to ask you a question that's sort of oriented again in the book. One of the things that you come around to is the possibility of tapping into information that's available from every person that ever lived, that's, you know, in the environment and somehow connected to electromagnetism and the Earth's electromagnetic field and the Schumann resonance and all of these things. And there's an implication that this is an explanation for what instinct is and other living things. Because you you specifically brought up my life as a turkey Yeah, Yeah. can can you tell our listeners a little bit about my life as a turkey, and then I have a question about my life as a turkey and about turkeys in general. Yes, and turkeys in general. Uh,
3: (laughs) My life is not a turkey. It's a documentary. (laughs) My life as a turkey is a documentary that I think was on PBS ten years ago, maybe. Uh But anyway, they they had this guy. (laughs) I don't even know how to explain it. He. He raised like 12 turkeys, all right? So from the moment they came out of the egg, he was there with them. So what he did was he sort of documented what they already knew versus what they had to be taught or learned. So as the turkeys sort of go about their daily business, he found out that they knew which sort of insects to eat and which snakes were poisonous and which ones weren't. They instinctually knew, They had to learn roads are bad, cars are bad, those types of things they had to learn. The guy
2: with the pointy thing pointed at me is bad. (laughs)
3: Exactly. (laughs) As you watch that, you sort of get this idea of how do they learn that, right? How do they know which snakes to avoid and which snakes to mess around with or which bugs to eat or which plants are poisonous and which ones to avoid. The idea being that it's I, I, it's instincts. It's sort of ingrained in their genetics or DNA or however you really want to go with it. And as we move along, there's numerous theories out there about Sort of Carl Jung's collective unconscious. So, with my life as a turkey, you know, the, the turkeys knew the basic blueprint of other animals friendly versus unfriendly, food, edible versus poisonous. However, they needed guidance in other areas. When it comes to collective unconscious, it's this idea that as humans, we're not born as blank slates. There's some part of us, he calls them archetypes or symbols or images that are, that's common for all people and all cultures, all races and all ages that's sort of been passed down since the beginning of our species. And these archetypes, which are passed down from generation to generation, are, are kind of part of us. We're born with them and we move on with them. Instincts are sort of the same way, but it's a good way to to counter this idea that we're born Blake Slates and that our upbringing is really all we have. The collective unconscious sort of contends that as humans, we all share and have access to sort of a blueprint for our psyche, which has been developing since the beginning of our species.
2: What was interesting to me about that, as I read in the book, I, I formulated my own theory, and these are often some of the best theories anyone's ever been exposed to, my personal theories, um, and I'm being sarcastic. They, I for, <laughs> formulated my own theory that in some ways, like with regard to Gettysburg, you mentioned Gettysburg, and uh, you know, obviously that's one of the most famous haunted battlegrounds in the world. Everyone know somebody who has a story about something strange that happened there. And and this is true with several battlegrounds all over the earth. But with relation to that and people experiencing soldiers who've experienced a horrific death of some kind or were suddenly taken away on the battlefield – I began to wonder based on a little bit on my life as a turkey if <laughs> if there was possibly an evolutionary reason for this in terms of like what you were saying before cell phones before we could exchange information over long distances maybe this is a warning that is being left in the environment for the next person that comes along to say if you drink from this lake you're going to die here's a vision of me dying I drank from this lake and so then I wondered if there was that case but then by the same token I got to thinking that the turkeys didn't know about cars, but maybe they don't know about cars because they didn't see a turkey apparition of a turkey getting hit by a car. (laughs) So then I went down this whole rabbit hole. I just didn't, I was... Wow. Uh, Yeah. Um, Well, you know, it sounds a little like uh,
1: (laughs) one of the hypotheses for night terrors is that it's a genetic holdover of when we were more living in trees and that fear of, or that sensation of falling out It happens with children and some adults where they they wake up screaming in total panic and terror, but they don't know why. It's not like they had a bad dream or anything. Again, like you were talking about, that residual instinct of like, careful, you're about to fall out, you know, and then you... You kind of spring to uh, you know this this moment of panic before you do fall out of the tree and
2: die. Yeah, there's no question in there. We're just no, no, gonna, no, we'll we're be... just gonna talk a lot about <laughs>
3: turkeys and
2: uh, and warnings, but and then we're just gonna get real quiet and wait. For right, you to <laughs> right. <laughs> but no, Mike. I guess my question on the end of that would be. Is it
1: something that is biochemical in the genes, or is that more psychic energy of of sorts? Does it reside outside of the body or in the body as we were talking about before, like with the near-death experience? Where does that come from? Why does it get triggered?
3: I think it, it was it would probably be internal. I mean, mm-hmm. we have all these these things that we've sort of evolved out of. A good example is the magnetic sense. So we have all these senses that are out there, right? Touch, taste, smell. Mm-hmm. More and more research is pointing to this idea that animals have a magnetic sense. So that's how they navigate the world. I think the University of Texas just actually found they did research on some worm, which actually has it's a small worm, but it has like a little antenna on top of its head. And it actually, the point of the antenna is to sense magnetic fields. And that's how Mm. they navigate through the world. So the question becomes you know, we don't just have five senses. We have other senses like position, heat, gravity, we can you know, those types of things we could sense. But at some point, maybe we had a magnetic sense. And that would be helpful for us to navigate as humans. So if we know where magnetic north is, we can kind of move around that way. At some point, we just evolved out of it. Maybe some people still have it, and that's why when they go to a computer, And they're around things that with a lot of magnetic EMFs or electromagnetic fields, they get drowsy, feel overwhelmed, or just get um, sort of really sensitive and almost nauseous to a point when they're around a lot of this electromagnetic fields. There's some people I know, there's a city somewhere in the States that just has no EMFs around it at all. And that's just people who are very sensitive to electromagnetic fields. And they go all hang out there because they can't survive in the normal world. Because, listen, we're all surrounded by electromagnetic fields from computers to Everything.
2: I think this may be what Michael McKean's character is suffering from in Better Call Saul, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Well, no, that's more, uh, he's afraid of it. Yeah. He, he's, oh, he's afraid of it. Yeah, yeah, he psyched himself
1: out so much that he, he yeah. believes it's <laughs> all, uh, you know, it's, it's all going to harm
2: him. Yeah, whenever anybody comes to visit him, they have to put their cell phone in the mailbox kind of
1: thing. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, Netflix just did a whole... Docu series on people with environmental sensitivities, uh-huh. and there's there's one lady who was. It's not one lady; it's a whole community that's electro sensitive, which means any sort of magnetic field, they just get ill.
2: Wow!
3: And they have to go, like I said, live in a special housing place where there's none of that stuff going on. And she came across somebody who had a cell phone, and she almost beat that person up.
1: <laughs>
3: wow! Are there vestiges of these? previous things that are going on with us? I, I think maybe. Some people may have more of them now than most of the population does. So maybe some of that has to do with, like you're talking about, this internal mechanisms, which whether it's magnetic sense or sort of walking into an environment and knowing something bad happened here and then sort of going, oh, maybe I shouldn't be here and then leave. So maybe there is something in the environment like a warning signal that's sort of just left there for some people that can figure that out. And maybe back when we were cave people, this was how we figured out where to go and where not to go, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. It's hard to know. Yeah. But
3: I think I think magnetic sense is one of those ones that, that we possibly more than likely had when we were cavemen or whatever.
2: I listen to Astonishing Legends. There was a sentence that jumped out at me from your book. Uh, it's on page 53, the first page of chapter 4, which I'm going to read right now. Um, you're referring to uh, Dr. Nander Fodor, who was prominent psychoanalytic therapist in the 1930s. The sentence is, uh, Fodor points out the flaws of scientific observation and objective measurements, stating that the very presence of an observer changes the emotional atmosphere in the house, a house being like a haunted house or something. The reason being that people who claim that their house is haunted change, as does the family dynamic. What's interesting to me about this is this is something we as a show, and and me specifically, but everyone on our kind of on our little team had a, a strange experience last year mm-hmm. at a haunted house in Kansas. At this house, and this is where I'm going to uh I'm not sure if Based on your experience, if you have like a couch, I can sit down on, and, and you can, <laughs> <laughs> and you're just He's, gonna you you can right now. You might just want to say, "I'm sorry, our time is up." Uh, <laughs> Scott's but, asking for therapy. You know, here, like, we we went into this notoriously haunted house called the Sally House, and um. You know, as, as I was reading through your book, I was equating a lot of things in there about you know predisposition and you know what. Where was my headspace when we went into this house? And our team, which was three or four people, we were not doing any kind of investigation. We were more just invited to check out the house by the local director of tourism because we were in town for something else. But we did wind up going in there and trying to collect an EVP with a one of those. I don't know if you've heard of them. It's an infamous EVP recorder. It's a Panasonic digital recorder from the '90s that is really sure. yeah. So we have one of those. So we we took it in there. And we got a pretty crazy EVP. But in the course of that, you mentioned the predisposition, and that's why you like the spontaneous, you know, in terms of the veracity, the spontaneous apparitions seem to be easier to believe because people aren't going in in a certain state of mind. One of the things that happened for me in this house is, and, and some other people who were with us is, we you know, we went down in the basement, and the basement was notoriously a spot where a lot of crazy things had happened. In fact, there were remnants of a pentagram on the floor. But I didn't feel anything in the basement. So I was come kind of out, and my point of view was, oh, this is a tourist trap. I believe all the things that happened here a long time ago, they happened back in the 90s. I believe that those things did happen. But I thought, well, these guys, you know, they're just getting people to come in here. It's generating income for the current owner of the house who lets people come do investigations and that sort of thing. And then we went upstairs and got this crazy recording, and I got super freaked out, left the house, and didn't go back, and we'll never go there again. So <laughs> <laughs> my my question is... How does all of that connect? Because you did, you talked a little bit about EVPs in your book and that sort of, when you get that kind of evidence, when you collect it on an electronic device, I couldn't determine whether or not I was interpreting something that I shouldn't have interpreted as, as that way. And uh, there were other things that happened to other people in the party, but then, then some people were with us, nothing happened other than they observed the, you know, they heard the recording itself, but didn't have any real experiences. And then that would be Forrest. Yeah, so. that would be me. So doc, am I crazy?
3: <laughs> no, I I it's it's kind of I mean that's a a fascinating story. Not when I say story I mean like how it impacted everyone different, not everyone differently, but whether it's a visceral reaction to it or oh it's just a noise.
2: Yeah.
3: It is. It's kind of a a great question as why is it impacting certain people certain ways and yeah. others not so much. If we look at it from a psychological point of view it obviously some people connect to it and it reminds them of something. But I don't know if that's necessarily true because it's such a vast number of people who heard it. I don't know. That'd be something to do a, a whole book on if you want to think about yeah. that. <laughs>
2: Well, I mean, it did have kind of a PTSD feel to it for me and still does now. I, I don't listen to it anymore. The recorder's in a box here in my house, and I, I don't even like to open the cabinet the box is in. But the PTSD aspects of it Start with the actual first time I heard the recording. It wasn't because the recording reminded me of something from my own childhood. Yeah, because I did. I likened it for me as an abusive, a really powerful abusive parent being able to yell at you or something. That's how it felt to me. But I would never experienced that as a kid in any way. But I felt like I could suddenly relate to that. It was strange.
3: Yeah, that is, I mean, it's a, it's a strange encounter, and that's what the paranormal is. It's it's really these these things that. You have an experience, and it causes more questions than it does answers. Yeah, yeah. And then you just go back down the rabbit hole, trying to find those answers, and you find a couple things that might go with it, but you keep find something else, and then you keep going down rabbit holes. I mean, it's the essence of really what we're trying to do is find some sort of semblance of what is going on. That's an example of who knows. I'm sure someone can come up with a theory that can explain whatever, but that's a visceral reaction to something that only – it's a subjective experience that that you had related to it and the numerous other people had related to it. So, And I don't know how it affected you as far as wanting to find more answers to it, but to me I would kind of want to know why, what happened, why did it make me feel this way. All that, all those I'm, questions. Yeah,
2: I'm still asking all those questions. I guess. Yeah,
3: perfectly normal reaction. So you're not crazy.
2: Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Our time is up. Uh, <laughs> no, and it's interesting because it's a little bit different from an apparition or the other things we're talking about because we we've collected something that we can reproduce by hitting the play button on that recorder. That's the interesting thing about it. That kind of hard evidence. Other people will say, "Oh, well, it's just it's a there's a it's a two way radio conversation being overheard, overheard." Even though we spoke with radio experts who said that's not what it was.
3: And for some people that they need to say that to move on with their lives. Yeah. They need an explanation that's clear cut and that's not supernatural so they can go on living the way that they've lived before hearing that recording. Yeah, Um, Mm -hmm. It's a psychological defense mechanism. It's what it is. And that's okay. Whatever.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That leads me to a a broader question here. Do you think that that's maybe what's going on in the scientific community in a mainstream way, because I was just was reading your article on, I guess it's on your blog, which is also really cool. People should check that out. We'll have links to that uh, on your website, but it was about the experiments done by William Crooks. Oh, yeah. And how it was received by the <laughs> scientific community of the mid to late 19th century. And they're identical. Yep. Those responses are identical to how people still receive them today within the mainstream scientific community.
3: It'll probably be like this in 10 years, <laughs> uh, 15 or 20 or 100 years. Right. It's this idea that if I accept this and if I believe that there isn't even a slim possibility that telepathy, psi, ghosts, consciousness being outside of our brains is true then everything I've done before that is wrong. yeah. And I don't think my psyche could handle 20 years of academic research sort of being going, oh, well, well, you missed all that. So it tears down sort of this materialistic view of the world and of people, and it makes it more universal, uh, holistic, and connected. And for a lot of people, that is not in their viewpoint of the world. So they will fight and claw to make that go away Mm -hmm. and whether that's by not funding whether that's by discounting people who do this type of research that's what they do and the the article you talk about william croaks he did an experiment with dd hume who was a prominent psychic back in the day and William Crookes was a member of the Royal Society. Mm-hmm. He's the guy that sort of founded um, thallium, the chemical. Uh, he had numerous other very important additions to science.
1: Yeah, the first to identify helium and invent mm-hmm.
3: sunglasses,
1: I'm reading here off your uh, blog here. Tremendous contribution to chemistry and physics. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you would think that he'd have to be at least listened to, but yeah. he no. wasn't.
3: Yeah. No, he wasn't. <laughs> they attacked him personally. They attacked his research methods. They said, well, you could be smart in chemistry, but stupid in everything else in the world. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> yeah. you still see that happening now, whether it's through social media or even the academic journals. It is what it is. And listen, I mean, recently, the president of the American. Statistical Association, Jessica Utz, I think last year in her presidential address, basically said, and this is from memory, but using standards applied to any other area of science, it is concluded that psychic functioning has been established. Data is quite strong statistically and would be accepted if it, it was related to something mundane. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a statistician who is a president of the American Statistical Association basically saying statistically, psi, telepathy, remote viewing has been proven. Mm -hmm. And that's a big step in the right direction. But then other people will just discount that. So they ask for, we need stats, we need experiments, we need this. You give that to them, and they discount it. And sometimes the only way for people to really be moved is through a personal experience. Um, And even that can be discounted at times, too. Yeah,
1: that's what we believe. That's,
3: you know, how that's what happened to me. Yeah,
1: well, that's what I tell everybody. (laughs) It's like you're it doesn't matter what evidence is presented. The crucible is going to be whether you have an experience yourself and how you deal with it personally. And it may change your mind on everything, or you may just discount it and said, well, that didn't happen to me as a way of dealing it. But let me ask you this, then. Do you think with, you know, science is about measurement and experiments and collecting data and analyzing it, do you think we'll ever get to a point where we do collect enough evidence and data or maybe invent something, piece of machinery, or there's something that's going to be irrefutable in the scientific world where we can maybe start to move past this sense of arrogance, I guess, or or just denial?
3: You know, I, I, I think that, Every year, I think we get closer to answering some pretty important questions. Consciousness, who we are, our personality. I remember, this is a big one that science mm-hmm. is really trying to wrap their heads around. So they're calling in all experts from all around the world, doing collaborative projects to find the answers to these types of things. And I think that you know we move closer and closer. Is there going to be a device? I don't know. I don't know if it'll be in our lifetime. Uh, I know... The more I read on things like this, sometimes I'll get Dr. Gary Schwartz is working on the soul phone. Have you ever heard of that one?
2: Yeah, I've heard the uh, the term. Yeah,
3: it's basically a type of phone where you can communicate with the deceased. Yeah. Oh, wow. I, yeah. So
2: talk about a high monthly charge. That's going to be that's going to be expensive. Not if you bundle. Yeah.
3: Okay. <laughs> but you know he's he's very adamant that this is happening he hasn't released anything quite yet wow but you know he's basically saying you have the ability to communicate with the deceased and if something like that happens that opens the door to a lot of possibility now is he going to do that i don't know i really have i've read some of his books but i don't really know what the basis of this is because uh-huh. he hasn't really released it to the world. Dr. Schwartz is a guy who's been working with afterlife theories for a long period of time, and I think he Yale-trained neuropsychiatrist or something like that. So this isn't a guy off the street with an antenna and a Coke bottle. This is <laughs> or, somebody. Who, yeah. So it's not us. Yeah.
2: Well, no, it's a, it's a little bit. Well,
1: that's how the you know the ghost box. You know that came about kind of by accident. In a more cra in a crazier purpose was just with aliens but it turns out (laughs) you know the sb7 uh, ghost radio there actually they think you know picks up maybe spirit communication so right he's on a more of a, a solid path that people can get on board with
3: exactly and he's got collaborators from all disciplines and they're trying to work on this thing he believes it's happening and he's got some experiments behind it that seem to be plausible so anyway he's moving towards it so that's really where we're going so if you figure out exactly a little bit more about consciousness so if consciousness goes on after we die that opens the doors Mm -hmm. to everything you know ghosts could happen if consciousness lives on how long after we die does our consciousness hang around can we connect with that consciousness if my consciousness after i die is floating around it could hang around and talk to people you know what i'm saying and telepathy and psi, all this stuff it it really opens the door to that and that's where they're moving
1: yeah well it's like the cloud uh, for our data but without any servers for it to emanate mm-hmm. from it. Just the cloud just is there. It just yeah. hangs over
3: us. Yeah. And if it's there, everyone can tap into it. Boom. Yeah. You yeah. The questions answered.
1: No, my follow-up question would be, I, I, maybe this speaks more to your personal belief. So if you're not comfortable talking about it, that's fine too. It's just more about, do you think that maybe then there are things that we're not supposed to know? And that, again, that would be a more of a, a grander spiritual sense that you we're only going to get so far because if you start to answer some of these questions or get definitive proof, then that changes the nature of spiritual belief.
3: Yeah, I, I think that there's some fundamental questions that let's say that he with a soul phone, if that does exist and he can do that as far as mass production of something like that, Yeah, like ethically, what does that really come down to? I don't know as a society if we're really ready for something like that. I mean, that's just one shade away from like a movie about reanimation or,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: or also like the um, gene editing that they're, you know, supposedly starting to do that too. Is, oh, it changes like, everything. So yeah, yeah you got to wonder
1: yeah. is, are we meant to, and I guess yeah, to me, that's a, a, a grander design of some kind of intelligent director. We, you could say like, well, no, because that's not what you're here for. That then messes up everything because then we all act differently from here on and we all believe something differently.
3: And I think there's two ways to look at that. But let's say, for instance, you can talk to Albert Einstein or some of the greatest minds in the world. Who have passed away mm-hmm. right theoretically let's say that's possible well you're gonna need his number first <laughs> right. so yeah because that's well, the thing yeah. schwartz
2: is gonna have to come out with like a phone book well you have a handle <laughs> it's right. like yeah it's like Instagram and i'm not making fun by the way i'm no, super no. into this I'm yeah, like, yeah i'm not being trying to be condescending no but no like, that's there's like, just like, a, there's a lot of opportunities for comedy here. Th-
1: yeah actually i'm sorry <laughs> there, there are but uh it is if you believe in uh psychic mediumship it's important to have a name i know that sounds like a joke but you need a a
2: point to contact these people. And you have to be specific, at least, you know, from what we've learned. Well, and there's other things that we've learned that would suggest that you don't always know who you're talking to. Well, and that's, you, yeah. so you might yep. be talking to somebody who says they're Einstein, but there's some other nefarious yep. entity. And how do you know?
3: Again, more questions than we have <laughs> <and> <laughs> answers to, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is what paranormal is. Right. But if you are able to do that, then there's some negatives, but there could be numerous positives. It could advance us not only spiritually, but consciously. We could maybe be more aware of how we're impacting all kinds of avenues from our bodies to the environment and what happens. All these things could really move us in maybe a better direction. But we're so far away, at least in my mind. I don't know what the soul phone creators think, but in my mind, we're so far away from that that it doesn't seem plausible anytime soon and maybe that's a good thing
2: i know that if they can license don cornelius the theme to soul train (laughs) for the commercials keep that thing's gonna fly off the shelves yeah
3: um yeah well i tell you what it's a heck of a read if you ever just type in soul phone or listen mm -hmm. to any oh yeah presentations or read any of his books because you kind of get pulled into it a little bit and you go well this guy's figured something out and then you kind of back off then you're back in so it's kind of an emotional roller coaster wow
2: yeah Yeah. we'll we'll check that out and maybe we can get him on the show Is he reclusive?
3: I don't know. I never met him. Okay.
2: (laughs) You know, one of our last questions, and we always come around to this type of question is, um, and again, you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but like, what is your personal worldview on, on the spiritual? I mean, do you personally believe that there is an afterlife or is this all just residual? And natural, but yeah. not really
1: supernatural.
2: Yeah. What, how do you feel about all And would you root everything? And well, this is, you know, eventually this is all going to be explained with quantum physics. When we get a better understanding, we're going to realize how this all works. What What do you personally think after all the, you know, research and education and, and experiences you've had?
3: I, I really think that um, I'm, in, I'm in favor of the survival hypothesis. I think there's enough sort of data or, or subjective experience or evidence, whatever you want to call it specifically through near death experiences to say that consciousness does live on after we die what happens to consciousness i'm not entirely sure best bet would be i think reincarnation is a plausible sort of idea so our consciousness our personality who we are after our body ceases to exist our consciousness goes out into the environment and sort of maybe back into another being or something like that, and we live all over again. So to me, that's a very plausible explanation. And I know reincarnation is probably the number one view of afterlife in the world, as far as number of people, not so much here in the States, but I think India and and, and those types of places. I have
2: a math problem with it, because there's so many more people are dead than alive. So where is everyone? Are they all in this giant waiting room? or how does that so work? many <laughs> so more you're, people you're, are dead than, yeah dead than alive is that what you said yeah yeah so i mean if there was a one-to-one relationship between you know you're, you're assuming a lot you know, i know but, but I guess.
3: <laughs> yeah but, but uh, if you look at it there's this idea that not everyone is reincarnated right you could become one with the universe which is okay uh, I don't know what the word is to that so you sort of graduate that's what, okay <laughs> that's what
2: i'm going to aim for
3: <laughs> so when you graduate, you've sort of attained that total enlightenment or whatever. Yes, as- okay. ascendance,
1: I think that's yeah, ascend, in, okay. yeah, yeah. In, in the biz. <laughs> it's like where you you've reached a point where we're here to learn. That's our purpose here. We keep coming back again and again until we've learned what we need to learn about life on Earth. And then once you've done that, you can move on.
3: I like that idea. To me, I kind of feel comfortable with it. It scares me sometimes to think that there's... Earthbound spirits of like deceased people I know kind of hanging around in some place just waiting and angry and throwing dishes and I kind of go, oh, my God, I feel so bad. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> no, the only thing that kind of uh, <laughs> uh, makes me feel bitter about that is that there's no sense of time. It's just to them, it's like, oh, man, I've been here five minutes. And I don't have any answers. And and really, it's been, you know, 5,000 years or whatever it
3: is. Yeah, I suppose that could help remedy my anxiety about yeah. that. <laughs> right. <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, Brandon, we just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. We, we're we sorry it took us a whole year to call you after saying, hey, oh, we're going to have you no. on the show.
3: Yeah. So. Oh, no, not a problem at all. I'm actually a big fan of you guys. So oh, I, I love oh, yeah. the Sally House episodes. OK. I like what you did with the EVP and and everything there. Um, I thought you guys really researched that into the ground for sure.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah. Part of it's not wanting to have to come back to that, but it's just when you do this and I'm sure you experience this with your own, you know, research and your books and your presentations is that you'll get people coming back at you. Well, what about this? Yeah, but did you think about this? And and so yeah. to answer all that, yeah. we try to be as thorough as possible or everything that we could think of. But what's funny, it's, it's a tick of human nature and will say like, no, we, we, we talked to ham radio experts, you know, to answer your question. It's, we don't believe it's radio interference. Yeah, but it's radio interference. (laughs) So you don't have any answer. You come back to that. It's just like, yeah, that's what it was. And and we find that that a lot. So
3: that one guy that just like, well, any idiot knows this is ham interference yeah you know. yeah <laughs> and then you go to experts and they go no it's not <laughs> yeah
2: and the experts yeah. actually said and i quote um that's a demon <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> right. that's yeah. Not... <laughs> yeah. but that guy won't change his worldview yeah uh, yeah he's well, gonna come up with some other reason that helps him get on with his life. Right, like
1: well, you well, said earlier. Said, it
2: changes everything. Alright, Brandon, thank you so much for coming on the show. We would love to have you back anytime in the future if you want to come back. We're going to have a bunch of links to your your book and uh, your blog and everything else and your upcoming appearance. Uh, so, just thanks for taking the time to sit down with us today.
3: Thanks for having me. I really had a great time talking uh, ghosts with you guys. <laughs>
2: That's going to wrap up our show with author Brandon Masulo. Be sure and check out his book, The Ghost Studies, which you can find on our website in the links for this episode. We'll be back next week with a new show. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the
1: show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolan.
4: Hiya, this is Sandra. I'm Brittany Williams.
2: Hi, I'm Corey Walsh. I don't know if you need it, but in case you do, here's a noise sample. Galaxy Galaxy-wide Wide in Perpetuity. perpetuity.
4: My name is spelt...
2: W-A-L. As in
4: Astonishing Legends.
2: Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendel and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson
1: Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter...
2: Facebook and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.